verse 1 of chapter 8 of John. It says, They went each into their own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charges to bring against him. So Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote into the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So, if you remember, way back in November when Paul taught, we taught in John chapter 7, what is kind of just finished taking place in our story is the Feast of Tabernacles. The city is still filled with a lot of people coming and going. The Feast of Tabernacles was a, a, a celebration, a remembrance of what God had done. And regarding to the Israelites coming out of Egypt and going through the wilderness. And so it's a time of remembrance. They'd live in booths as they didn't, they lived in tents throughout the wilderness. And at the very end of the festival, Jesus stood up and he says, come to me all you are you know, thirsty and I'll have rivers of living water flowing out of you. And it was a a celebration at the end of the feast, they'd dump out water. It represented the water coming out of the rock. The reason why I mention this is because our story really does fall right on the hind part of that. The feast has ended, but there's a lot of similarities to that. And so as they're kind of, everybody's going away, Jesus is getting into it, the Pharisees, they bring this woman to Jesus. He's teaching in the temple. He's most likely teaching in, we find the, the treasury, which is the court of the women. So all people can be in this court. And they bring this woman and they throw her before him and they say, listen, what do we do with this lady? We caught her in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses says that we need to stone her. So here's the thing. The law of Moses does say that. In fact, it was, but the problem was is that Israel lost the right to capital punishment. They just couldn't kill anybody they want. Rome held that right. And so what the Jews did to make sure that they could actually fairly judge somebody in this is they determined that the only way they could ever uh, fulfill this, this, like go to Rome and say, we have, this is part of our law, you have to let us do it, is they have to have an eyewitness, which literally means that somebody had to be an eyewitness to what was going down. I'll let you use your imagination. It was a setup. We know it was a setup because where's the dude, right? Takes two to tango, Right? And the law was very clear that both the man and the woman needed to be brought. And so Jesus is not stupid. He knows what's going on. In fact, our text tells us that they wanted to test him. Here's the test. Either he says, yes, you're right. The law does say to stoner. Now he's violating Rome's law of capital punishment. And so now they can convict him of that. Or he says, you know what? No, let's not stoner. And Rome's like, cool. But the Jews are like, see, he's breaking the law of Moses. They thought they had Jesus in this predicament that he couldn't get out of. 
So how does Jesus respond? He bends down and he begins to write in the dirt. Man, I'd love to know what he wrote. We're not going to speculate because we don't know, okay? Everybody is always, well, wait, maybe he's writing this. Maybe he's writing this. Maybe he's writing this. Maybe he did. We have no idea, okay? We have no idea what he wrote. But whatever it was that he was writing in this stand, so he, he, they're asking him, right? They're asking him, and he is saying nothing. He's just like, maybe he's doodling. We don't know. Maybe he's drawing a picture. We have no idea. But it caused, and then he stands up and he says, whoever is without sin, whoever is sinless, throw the stone first. Part of that is also determining that whoever witnessed this event, they're the ones that are actually supposed to throw the first stone. So the fact that that person may have not been there, the guy wasn't there, whatever the case is, they, they realize that they don't have much to stand on. And Jesus then goes down and writes again. And as he's writing, it says that they started going away one by one, starting with the oldest. So whatever he wrote caused, caused the older people to walk away first and all to the youngest until nobody was left except for Jesus and this woman. Now, this is the reason why I think this story is so beautiful and why the early church couldn't get away from having it be a part of the story. It's what Jesus says next. He says to her, he says, he stands up and he says, woman, where are they? Does no one condemn you? Here's what's beautiful. He says, woman. The last time Jesus used this in the book of John was when he was referring to his mom in Cana, when she said, Jesus, we ran out of wine. He says, woman, my time has not yet come. This was a very respectful honoring term to a refer to woman. It's almost like madam or like it, it was a, tr a term of endearment. And so here you have this woman who is labeled as an adulterer, who is guilty, like guilty, guilty. Okay, the guy's guilty, but she's guilty. And she may have been referred to as many other things, but nobody that day was calling her a respectful woman. He gave an undignified woman dignity and value. A guilty woman. That is profound. He could have said anything else to her, but he says, where are your condemners? Where are the people that condemn you? You are guilty. Where are they? The only one that could condemn him that day was Jesus. He was the only one that was sinless. He was the only one that could throw the stone. And his response to her is, woman, where are your accusers? He's like, neither do I condemn you. It is important for us to understand that this woman met a different kind of man. She met a kind man. She met a good man. She was being brought forth by these men, being used just like the man that she was caught with was using her. They were using her for their own gain. They wanted to trap Jesus. And Jesus stands in the way and says, no. Woman. She met a new man that day. What's interesting is the contrast that we see here with just how Jesus treated her and how these men treated her. Here's what's interesting, is he says, I don't condemn you. We have to be clear, Jesus wasn't not condemning her because what she did wasn't a big deal. You know, there was early church historians and stuff that wouldn't like to teach this text because they, they felt they were letting people off the hook. That's not why Jesus let her off the hook. Jesus didn't condemn her because he knew he would pay for her sin on the cross, that he would be condemned in her place, that he would take her death instead of her taking her death. 
So when he says, go and sin no more, it was almost this preemptive strike on the sin and death that she deserved to die for. He knew, I'm going to be paying for this. Go and sin no more. And when he said sin no more, it's not like he's saying, if you ever sin again, you're in trouble. Everything is going to come back upon you. It's the idea of like, don't let sin rule over you. Don't let sin be the very thing that defines you. Don't let that be your identity piece. He's saying, don't let sin be the thing that is ruling your life. Go and sin more, like live. And here's the thing. We see that she recognized Jesus was a different man because she says, she said, where's your accuser? She says, like, I don't know. Like nowhere, Lord, right? Not just some random guy. Like she's seeing him as more than just a man. And then Jesus goes on. And we see this contrast coming between this woman, this guilty, obviously guilty woman, and the religious leaders. Verse 8, verse 12. I mean, chapter 8, verse 12, he says, And Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, but I make no judge. Um, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but it's I and the Father who sent me. In your lot is written that the testimony of two people is true, I am one that bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. It says, they said to him, therefore, who is your father? We'll stop right there. So Jesus starts off by saying, I am the light of the world. Those who walk with me, who follow me, will not walk in darkness. Now, one of the things, if if you've been with us from the beginning, is John is notorious for having a lot of symbolism. The whole reason he wrote the book of John, uh, different than a lot of the other Gospels, he says that, that you may know that Jesus is the Son of God, that you might have salvation in his name. His whole goal is to reveal who God is, ultimately that it's God revealed. Jesus is God revealed. Okay? And so one of the things that John emphasizes is he has seven I am statements that he says. This is the second one. Now these I am statements are important because as we're talking about God revealed, the I am is how God chose to define himself to Moses. When Moses was before the burning bush and God saying, hey, I want you to go and, and go tell Pharaoh this and that and that and, and get my people free and let's go, Moses is like, well, who am I going to supposed to tell him sent me? And he says, I am. Tell him I am sent you. I am that I am. That's found in Exodus 3.14 which we can spend a whole time talking about the magnificence of just that. Not I was, not I will be, that I am, right? Like, I am. In this moment, I am. I am, and every time God has a different name about himself, I am your provider. I am this. I am your victor. I, I am the one that sees you. Like, it's beautiful. So Jesus is making these I am statements, and he says, I am the light of the world. What's interesting about this, is so significant about light, that we can spend, we could spend a whole time just talking about how crazy light is, right? That it's, it's waves and it, you know, the speed of light, time stands still. I mean, there's like, we could get into that. We don't have time for that. But just practically, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. What's interesting is that John starts his book, 
his gospel by talking about in the beginning, God created, like in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It was referring back to Genesis 1 where it was in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so we have this connection that's going on here and John says in the beginning, right? So Jesus, when he says, let there be light, light, I'm the light of the world, it's the very first thing that was created. If we go all the way back to the beginning, light. What's interesting about creation is that light was not like the stars because they were created later. It wasn't the sun. That was created later. The light was something that God created and the light emanated from himself. God was the light. So for Jesus to say, I am the light of the world, it's significant. It's not like taken lightly, right? He's saying, I am the light of the world. Light was coming from essentially God. But not only that, they just finished celebrating the Feast of the Tabernacles. And with the Feast of the Tabernacles, they were remembering all these elements of them going through the wilderness. And one of the ways that they would remember that is in the, the tabernacle or in the uh, court of women, which is also the treasury, there would be these money boxes there that they would give their offerings when they come to the temple. But above those were these two huge candelabras that they would light during the feast that would light up the whole cart, courtyard. And it was representative of the fact that when the Israelites came out of Egypt, there was a pillar of light that would go before them so that they could walk at night, and then it would turn into a cloud, and it would shield them in the desert so they could walk in the daytime. It was God leading his people through the wilderness. And so they'd light these candelabras to symbolize God, his providence, and his, and his leading his people, and being that light, and being that warmth in the desert. And so Jesus is coming in. Now, these candelabras most likely aren't being lit as often because the feast is over. But when Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world, it causes the average listener there that day to kind of remember the very candelabras that are still there that they just celebrated. This light that led the nation of Israel through the wilderness at night. Because as they followed God, as they followed that pillar, they walked in light, and they were able to be in safety and have warmth and all of these things. It was almost as if Jesus was saying, I am that pillar of light that was with you in the wilderness that you followed. And it makes a lot of sense because he says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so as they're following, as the Israelites followed the pillar of light, the pillar of fire, so now they're able to follow Jesus. It's, he's drawing connections to their story. And what's interesting is what he says next. He says that you will have the light of life. The light of life will come from you. You will now be the source of illumination. What's interesting is that when we look at the story previously in chapter 7, Jesus stood up right during the very part, like I mentioned, that they were dumping out the water, representing the water coming out of the rock that Moses you know, hit with, the, with his staff. And Jesus said a similar thing. He said, he who trusts in me and comes and drinks of this water, you'll have water flowing out of you. You will now be the source of thirsting, of quench, quenching people's thirst. You will be the source. I will use you to help like, quench thirst of people, their soul. And he's saying a very similar thing. Hey, he who follows me, you will also have this light coming from you. It's almost as though Jesus is saying, like, these, I was with Israel through this time. I was representing, I was pointing people to a future time where I'd fulfill that. And now that I'm going to be leaving soon, my people, my church, my followers will then 
do that work and continue it on. One thing that's always very practical at light, and this is why I think it's just awesome that Jesus refers to himself as that, is that light, light is just, it, it reveals what's already there. Okay? It, it reveals what's already there. Darkness is the absence of light. And Jesus is what he's what he does is he it's not that suddenly things radically change. All he's doing is revealing what's already been there. Maybe it's something in our own heart. Maybe it's lies that we believe. Maybe it's things about our own self that he's showing. And we're like, whoa, where did that come from? It's always been there. Like it's just that I tell you what, just like on a total side note, there's nothing more encouraging to me than as I've been following Jesus in my life, and he reveals like jacked up stuff in my heart. That's not the fun part, okay? So, oh my gosh, how long has that been there? And he's like, always. You're like, wow, cool. But God has been faithful to me. He loves me. He was using me. He's been, I've been up, been a, had to be a part of what he's doing. And that's been there the whole time. And in five, ten years from now, he's going to show me some more stuff that's there. That's been there the whole time. God's desire to us to partner with him doing really has nothing to do with us and most to do with him. And that he uses us, flawed people, broken people, and he uses us to fulfill his purpose and, and, and partners with us on his mission and lets us participate with what his, he is doing. Not because we are good, but because he is good. And he loves us and he gives us value and he gives us worth despite brokenness it's like this like it doesn't make any sense he lets light come out of us and he lets us help quench thirst of other people and so then jesus gets into kind of a sparring match and this sparring match will go through this week and next week and it gets a little down and dirty like i love man trash talk is happening okay we're gonna see it in a few minutes but um but jesus really gets into it next week and I love that Jesus isn't that this timid, like, okay, you guys are upset, I'll back off. Like, he gets into it, they get into it. And so they kind of, they kind of jab, and they're like, well, we can't even trust what you're saying. Like, you're bearing witness of yourself. And he's like, first off, you don't know me, and you definitely don't know my dad, okay? And if you did know me, like, you'd know that, like, I'm not judging anybody. And then he goes, plus, your law says that there's one witness, there needs to be two witnesses to confirm anything. I'm one, my dad's two. So I'm all, I am obeying your law. Like, but you don't know me. You don't know where I came from. You don't know me. And so, there, so then they get onto it in verse, we'll jump back into it in uh, verse 19. He says, and they said to him, well, where is your father? And Jesus, Jesus said to them, you know neither me nor my father. If you known me, you would know my father also. And says that he spoke these wor words in the treasury and taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So they say to him, Where's your dad? Who is your dad? Where is your father? Um, that is a pretty low jab that they hit him. They know who his dad is. His dad, they believe, was Joseph. Joseph was probably dead. And so when they're saying, where is your father? They're basically making a jab at, like, the fact that the rumor was and we get into it, especially more next week, the rumor was is that Jesus' Jesus's mom was unfaithful to her husband and got pregnant from somebody else, okay? They actually jab him with that, 
say, well, at least we didn't come forth from our mom cheating on somebody, basically. So when they're saying, where's your father at? They're basically making this jab at, like, A, your dad's dead, and is he really even your dad? And Jesus' response is, you don't know me or my father, again. And if you knew me, you would know my father also. So Jesus is keeping his cool, which I love. So then he gets on, verse 21. He says, said to them, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sins, and where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews, because they just get dark real fast, said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where we're going, we cannot come? Man. And he said to them, you are of this world, and I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. You will die in your sins. And so they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to him, just what I was saying from the beginning. I have much to say to you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. I'll stop right there. So, he says, I'm going away. You're going to seek me. You'll try and find me. Where I'm going, you cannot come. I'm not of this world. And then he says to him, I told you that you would die in your sins. This is interesting because it's contrasting the woman. They wanted this woman to die because of her sins just a few minutes earlier. And now, Jesus is saying the same exact thing to them. They were ready to kill for that sin, but she went away forgiven, and they're the guilty ones condemned to death. But Jesus gives them a way out, which is so interesting. He says, unless you believe that I am he. This, in verse 24, the he is added. It's added just kind of make it flow better. But he actually said, unless you believe that I am. I am it could be I am he, but I am, right? I think that he's referencing back to the I am statement. That he's saying, unless you believe that I am, Jesus is making a direct link to the I am. But even if he wasn't, he is saying, unless you believe that I am the Messiah, the Savior that you've been waiting for, you will die in your sins. The key is, is unless you believe that I am who I said I am, that unless you believe that I am the, either the Messiah you're waiting for, that I am the I am, unless you believe this, you will die in your sins. We'll get into next week why I believe that he's making a direct link to the I am because he actually says it very explicitly next week. But it's the same idea for the woman that it is for them and that he is calling them to trust him. He is calling them to trust. Believe me, if you trust me, you can be saved. He was giving him away. So they said to him, well, who are you? And he's like, the same person I've been telling you from the beginning. And he's like, I have much to say, and I have much to declare to the world. And Jesus then says, but I, I only communicate really what, God, what I hear from God. And we see Jesus kind of hinting at this idea of submitting to the Father, which leads us to our last section, which is just powerful, and I love it. Verse 27. They did not understand that he was speaking about the Father. And Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, <clears throat> then you will know that I am he. And I do, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Jesus is building this fascinating claims that he's gonna, we're going to continue on into next week. And he's saying it again, unless you believe... 
that you may know that I am. That I do nothing on my own authority and I speak from the Father. But then he talks about being lifted up. And he's drawing a direct reference to the cross. It's like, when I am lifted up, then you will know. As he's, we saw that even with the, with the Roman soldier, he said that surely this is the Son of God once Jesus was on the cross, right? As he died. The cross was the very thing that was going to show the world who he was. And it was nothing that they expected. They did not expect their Messiah to have to die. That was totally out of left field for them. And Jesus is speaking directly of his death and ultimately his resurrection that the world would know that he's the Savior. And then he says, I do nothing on my own authority, but I am taught by the Father. We see submission to the Father come up again. Why is this important? It's important because Jesus is the image of God, right? That human beings were created as image bearers of God. We failed miserably at it. God's given us his law to try and allow us to do that. We failed at that. And so God came, the image of God came, and Jesus is representing humanity perfectly. He is the perfect human, and perfect humans submit to the Father. And so he is perfectly in his, in his deity, in his godness, is still submitting as a human being to the Father. He is the perfect man. And then he says something that's amazing. He says, he, is, he, is never, he has not left me alone, and I always do the things that are pleasing to him. When sin entered the world, human beings were separated. God and essentially humans left God's space. There was a separation. And God brought the law so there could be partial, like that unification could sort of be there, and the temple kind of, there was veils, and there was all of the sacrifice was necessary. But Jesus as the human that represents the world essentially, the perfect human being, he's saying, listen, God's presence has never left me. I, which is powerful because on the cross he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the sin of the world was placed on him. But not only that, he says something that's even more beautiful here. He goes, I always do the things that are pleasing the Father. Always. And God confirmed it actually previously when Jesus was baptized, right? Jesus went down, came up, and the Holy Spirit descended on a dove, and it says a voice from heaven said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I want us to camp out on this for a second because this is so powerful. What would it be like? I hear so many people, I just want to please God. I just want to please God. What would it be like to be like, I am pleasing to God, like to know what that means, to always please the Father. I would love to be able to say that. And as I was reading through this, this story, it reminded me of another story in, chapter, in Luke chapter 18. I'm going to read it to you, verse 9. <clears throat> so he said he, sold, he told another parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He said, two men went up into the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, Thus, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give my tithes to all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, <clears throat> this man went home to his, went to his house justified rather than the other. 
For everyone who exalt, exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. We have a Pharisee saying, I'm better than everybody else. I do all this awesome stuff. I'm good. I read my Bible every day. I give. Then you have this tax collector who can't even, his posture, he can't even look up. He stands far off and he just says, Let's have mercy on me, a sinner. The thing why the Holy Spirit gave me this, this story and popped in my mind is because we see that in our story today. We have a woman that is obviously guilty. She is the tax collector. She is, she's, she's, she's lived some, made some terrible choices. She is a sinner. She is obvious. Everybody knows. She has a reputation. Everybody knows who she is. And then you have these religious leaders. And I think that with this, it, it reminds me so often of our posture when we come before God. My posture. So often, I come in different, different postures. Maybe you feel like this adulteress, where when you come before God, your sin is evident, your shame is public, you feel up the opposite. You can almost say, like, I never do what's pleasing to God. And so when you come before God, your posture is afar off. You can't even look up. You've come to believe that you are your sin. And so your Lord, you're, you're just like, I can't even look up. But I think sometimes our posture can be the other thing without being like, cruel, maybe, maybe sometimes we're like the Pharisee, right? Where we come before God in prayer or whatever it may be, and maybe we're like the Pharisee, and you're like, I'm doing pretty good. You rattle off your accomplishments like he did. You look around, you're like, at least I'm not like that guy. At least I'm like her, like, I'm doing better than him, but maybe not as good as that guy. Like, I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm killing it. Like, I'm doing all right. I'm good. God, listen to my prayer. Listen to me. Like, I, I, I've earned it. I know it's really brash, but I believe this happens. I know I do it. Maybe I'm the only one. And then there's other times where I'm like, God, I don't even know why you'd listen to me right now. Like, I'm sucking at life. Maybe you stand afar off. Our posture communicates what we believe about God and the gospel so often. Because here's the reality. God created humans in his image to live in relation with the Father, and he gave us his law so he could show us how to do that. And if we obeyed it perfectly, we would show our trust, and that would please God. The problem is, is that we are not able to do that. We, on our own, apart from Jesus, are not able to please God. Whether we're the Pharisee or the tax collector, whether we're the religious leaders or the adulteress, we are all in the same predicament. And that is, we have all sinned and struggle in one way or the other, and we're consistently do not please God. Our sin in our rebellion against, is it really against his order, whether it be his definition of good and evil or what we believe is true, whatever the case is. And so we're all deserving of death. Jesus makes it clear in this text, like, they both were like, you're both going to die in this. But here is the good news. Jesus came and lived the law perfectly. He lived in perfect submission to the Father. He imaged God perfectly in the world. And he says here, and he declares here, I only do what's pleasing to the Father. I am pleasing to God. But he also went to the cross and he died for the sin of the world for us, pray, paying our penalty just as he paid the penalty of this adulterous woman. He paid our penalty so that we could be forgiven. He took our punishment and was condemned on our behalf. 
This is the beauty of the gospel, that the gospel is good news because it's about God's work, not our work. And we know that this is true throughout the scriptures, but I think the verse that sums up the best is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, and it says, For our sake God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our sin and gave us his righteousness. Think about that. Jesus took our sin and gave us his righteousness, if we want it, by faith. He is the only one that pleases the Father ever. And here's the beauty. We please God when we trust Jesus. When we trust Jesus, when we trust him for our righteousness, when we trust him for our forgiveness, when we trust him, we please God. And that is the only way. And so when God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, that is now spoken over us and those that trust the Lord. It radically changes everything because now I don't do to be loved. It's because I'm loved, I do. And so it's not that I just get to run wild and do whatever I want. No, I want to love. I want to love others. I want to love my neighbor. I want to love God because he has loved me. And when he sees me, he sees his son. He sees his son's righteousness. And so it changes our posture. It's no longer I am my sin or I am my success. I can come, as it says in Hebrews chapter 4, I can come boldly with confidence to the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. It changes everything. The confidence I come in is not my own confidence, whether I'm killing it this week or failing this week. I'm coming in the confidence knowing that Jesus has done it all. He paid it all. And when he finished, he said, it is finished and all I'm doing is trusting that and God says this is pleasing to me that's it that's the beauty and it changes how I respond so now I respond with love and I respond with wanting to follow Jesus and when I fail I trust Jesus thank you that you paid for this Jesus thank you that you're my righteousness see how that changes things it changes so we become a, a people of good works, not because we have to or because if we don't, we're going to get struck down. We become a people of good works because God has given us the, good, the best work. He is the, the best good work, and it's been for us ultimately. And so, as we close out our time, as we come to the table, <clears throat> we participate in communion, we want to remember that. We want to remember what Jesus has done. And music, you guys can count them up and we can get dialed in, but what we're gonna be, we're gonna spend a couple of songs singing and reflecting on what God has done. And I wanna encourage you, maybe, maybe today you feel like this woman or the tax collector, like you feel like, man, I'm a mess. Listen, in Jesus, you're not condemned. Trust him. Maybe you realize you've been like the Pharisee. Maybe you're always looking down at everybody else. Maybe you're like, I'm doing great because I'm better than all these people. I'm killing, I'm reading my Bible. Like, these are all good things. I'm not mocking that. But we still have the same need, and that is Jesus. Jesus is the one that brings pleasure to the Father. And when we trust him, his pleasure is on us. So come. We have bread and juice. You can come and you can grab it if you don't have it already when we start singing. And you can take it back to your seat. You can take it. We're doing this together, so it's not like we're by ourselves.